Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, July 27th, we are studying Psalm 137. In today's text, the people of God lament while they are exiled in Babylon and far away from Zion, and they pray that God would bring about vengeance on their enemies. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets. Dr. Teets serves as Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Teets, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Oh, it's great to come back for a really messy text today. I seem to like the messes for some crazy reason. Yeah, this is this is one of those psalms that it's not in our hymnal, and it's one that sometimes we, we skip over, but it's one that I thought we needed to talk about here on Sharper Iron because it's there in the Scriptures, and so it's, it's worth our, our time and our attention. Before we, we talk about this psalm in particular, and, and maybe imprecatory psalms even in general, let's just talk a little bit about the Psalter. Talk to us about the place of the Psalter within the canon and within the life of the Christian. Yeah, and that actually is really important as we consider what to do with this psalm that, frankly, is going to make us really uncomfortable at the end. Uh, You cannot pick and choose these psalms because this is the prayer book of the church. So these are God's uh, divinely authorized ways to speak back to him, which is a really important thing to consider. And especially in terms of the Psalter itself, we can talk about it having a bit of a, a fairly large macro structure with the five books, is that the Psalter actually moves us from Here's the ideal, book one, to life falling apart and eventually moving us to praise at the very end. So it actually takes us on an entire journey from both lament to praise. So, all right, keep keep going with that line of thought and how Psalm 137 is going to fit into all that. Yeah, so I'm going to just preempt one of the arguments from the get-go. When you get to an uncomfortable psalm like this, one of the classic arguments is, the prayers, oh, the Psalter was ultimately prayed by Jesus, which, hey, that's good, good theological foundation. But then the next move is curious to me. The move is Jesus can pray it because Jesus was perfect. Therefore, he can pray all these Psalms, even the ones that involve Babylonian babies against the rocks. But because we are not perfect, again, agree with that the- theological assertion, uh, we can't necessarily pray a Psalm like this. Uh, that's a bit of a problematic assertion. Uh, Bottom line is you cannot pick and choose. Uh, Based upon that logic, uh, we couldn't pray any of these psalms. So if you want to, if you give up Psalm 137, you might as well give up Psalm 23, which I don't know if anybody wants to do anytime soon. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So talk to us more about the the shape of the Psalter. And I, I think it's I think it's particularly telling, even within the the smaller section that we've been looking at. Now we've not looked at every single psalm here on Sharper Iron. There's just we've been doing selected ones during this month of July, but we have looked at some of the psalms of ascent, and and there's been that movement, you know, up to Jerusalem. The idea of going to worship pilgrimage, even in the two that aren't psalms of ascent, one thirty five, one thirty six, that that immediately precede this, you have you know the joy. 
And then here comes Psalm 137, totally different character. Talk about the the shape that, that's been going on and how that affects the way we read and understand. Yeah, Zion is the goal of the Psalter, and we're going to talk about Zion theology a ton here in Psalm 137. A Zion is not earthly Jerusalem. You can talk to uh, Jeremiah about how that theology gets abused during his day. But whether Zion, this goes to Isaiah 2, sort of your classic uh, Zion in a nutshell text, is Zion is one where God is, so incarnational language writ large. It's where God's Torah is, God's teaching is. And it's where everybody is gathered and experienced radical shalom. So it is the absolute hope for all people. So they've been desiring to go there, but in Psalm 137, the problem is they can't go there. Yeah, and this will be the only time I ever quote Walter Brueggemann positively, just so everybody's not concerned. Uh, for those of you who know Brueggemann, uh, he's a, oh, on my Mount Rushmore of theologians that can, tend to drive me nuts because he sounds so orthodox and generally isn't. Uh, I've, I've, I've heard lectures that sounded completely different to me some, from some other people, but uh, Brueggemann talks about uh, psalms either being psalms of orientation or disorientation. Uh, this psalm is a massive disorientation. So what, what does that mean? It is a what to do when all is lost and you've suffered horribly. And this, uh, God, I thought I knew who you were. God, where are you? And these really powerful questions. This is a wonderfully emotional psalm. And, and that's true of the Psalter in general, is that you can just hear the feeling of, I thought I knew who God was. I thought I knew who I was. And now everything has fallen apart. God, what's going on here? Where are you, and how can I even move? How, how can I even move forward? Mm, yeah, and the thing I, I love about the Psalter, from those questions that are very real, is that the Psalter teaches us to ask those questions to God. And, and if we don't do that, then we'll be lost. But when we ask those questions to God, then He He even drives us back into His Word, and that's that's where trust and faith start to to grow yet again. Yeah, and, and being angry with God is never something that has ever scared me as a pastor. Mm. Uh, indifference terrifies me. I mean, I had one of the worst conversations of my life where, so why, why have you left the faith? And the person just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, that's your thing, and I just don't care. That was horrible. That was a devastating conversation. But when you're angry with God, and it's, you know, and this psalm and when the laments are even, even more so, is that you're actually realizing there's a relationship at stake here. Yeah. Uh, when somebody's angry with God, I, well, God can take it. And as a pastor, and I cut my teeth back at St. Louis University Hospital, did two units of clinical pastoral education and trauma one chaplaincy, which for a guy who, was a little, who wasn't really a fan of hospitals, it kind of broke me in pretty well. Uh, but you end up dealing with these unspeakable tragedies. And what do you do? You actually call God out on God's promises, knowing that God isn't going to leave you and that God is going to embrace you even more by, this, by these promises. Yeah, yeah. So with that that unspeakable tragedy, talk to us about what's going on in the background for Psalm 137. There's no superscription to this psalm, but within the text, uh, I mean, of, of I think most of the psalms, we have a pretty clear picture of where we are in history here. Yeah, uh, the first three words in the Hebrew pretty much say it all. Uh, upon the rivers of Babylon. The moment I hear Babylon, now I'm in the wrong place. Uh, land is huge. Huge, and this is something that, depending who's listening here, I'm going to just own the fact that uh, I don't get land theology like some of you probably do. 
I've lived too many different places. I'm a university brat growing up at scenic Purdue University, and, and I did not go there for the record because I don't do math, uh, <laughs> is that uh, land is connected to identity. So the land of Israel, that great promise in Genesis 12, is not only a, it's nice to have a space to live. It's actually far more than that. It is, the land is where you are, it's where you belong, it's your community. So the moment I get that moment, oh, that those first three words, Oh, sorry, I'm counting the Hebrew words because I'm a dork for the record. Uh, upon the rivers of Babylon, the moment I get this, already I have a massive problem here. It means I'm no longer at home. And with that, we have this whole crisis of the exile. Uh, once the exile happens, all God's promises are now really, really thrown into absolute doubt. Hmm. So we kind of go through it. We have the, these major landmarks in the biblical text that just drive the story drive the story of salvation. So you have Genesis 12. Uh, God's going to promise what? Land, descendants, name. And uh, be a blessing to the nations. Bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Uh, to be in Babylon means, well, no land, descendants, big question mark. And uh, last I checked, uh, God's not cursing those who just cursed us. Hmm. So we can talk Genesis 12. We can talk what on earth with Second Samuel 7 for David? God, you said there'll always be David here, and we have no David. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Remind us a, a little bit more about the historical event of the exile and how that affected the people of Judah. It's a huge thing that happens in the Old Testament, but sometimes, at least I know the Old Testament, sometimes we forget those big things. So remind us just of how, and give us a sense of how important that would have been, because as you said, in a, a culture in which we move around a little bit more than they would have, we don't have that same sense of what it means to be just uprooted from your homeland. So to help us get that sense. Yeah, so 586, 587, depending how, who wants to do the math on one year BC time, which is always amusing to be. Which, which year you want to go with, is that we've always had that God's promise of staying in the land was contingent upon the people uh, keeping the sign of the covenant, being loyal. Uh, the prophets warned them, and, and you're right, uh, past, uh, Pastor, what ends up happening for most of us is we get all excited about the 8th century prophets, that once we get into the, uh, once we get into the 6th century prophets, we kind of ignore them. Like, oh yeah, by the way, there's this little thing that happened, let's move on with our lives, and can we just get to Matthew at that point? And then, yeah, okay, we have a few other books in there. We have Haggai, Obadiah. Okay, Zechariah is kind of cool. Uh, Malachi is nice. But can we just yeah. get on? Can we just get on to the story? But so this is where the book of Ezekiel is in the background of this text. Uh, book of Obadiah, big time with the reference of Edom, which, yeah, there's my gratuitous second show in a I, row where I mentioned Obadiah. I knew Obadiah. we were going to talk about Obadiah this time, okay. though. I, yeah, I knew this, that was going to come up. Okay, this is a heck of a lot more, uh, this is a heck of a lot more yeah. predictable than the last time I was on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where, so where God tells the people that the reason this has happened isn't because God has abandoned them. Oh, it's actually because God has abandoned them. It's not because God has somehow lost a battle against the Babylonian deities or some way like that that they would have framed it. But this is actually an act of divine punishment. Jeremiah's adamant about it. Ezekiel has almost the exact same setting at the start of his book as Psalm 137. He's yeah. uh, by the way, the river's a K-bar. So here they are with your identity doesn't matter. You have no home. And the other big piece here, and this factors massively into why the, the just the emotion, sheer 
raw emotion of this text, and it is absolutely just beautifully raw, is that to not have Zion, to not have temple, means at this point, God, can we even be forgiven? Hmm. And these raise these are painful questions in the background in this. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, I really appreciate that last point, that I mean, it's not just the matter of being gone from the homeland and the judgment of God, but with the temple being gone, the place that God promises to forgive sins, is that forgiveness gone? That's that's a huge question. Yeah, that's that's really important. So we're we've we've kind of talked about this already. We're we're looking at an imprecatory psalm, as you said. This is I think the most shocking of the imprecatory psalms, based on what is prayed at the end. What do we? Well, what is an imprecatory psalm? And and just at least get us started on the thought of of how we can still hear these and use these as Christians. Yeah, yeah. This really, this text is really the uh, poster child for Marcionism. So if you if you want a proof text for Marcionism, yeah, Psalm one thirty seven is sort of your proof text for it, which uh, offends me personally uh, since I teach Old Testament. Uh, just hearers, just a, I, I speak in tongues on occasion. It's an odd habit of mine. Uh, Marcionism is the uh, ancient Christian heresy that the Old Testament God is not the same as the New Testament God. Uh, Old Testament is a God of wrath. Uh, New Testament is the God of love, therefore the Old Testament is inferior and really shouldn't even have a place in the life of the Christian. That's the short version of Marcionism. Uh, I'm always reminded of one of my teachers at St. Louis who used to talk about the Marcians are coming, was one of his great fears and little green men, but that was hmm. a, that was a, uh, I can't, I can't take credit for that here because I'm stealing it from somebody else. But this idea of when evil happens, we need to name evil for what it is. And the imprecatory psalms are calling on God to actually fulfill God's promises and defeat evil. Hmm. Uh, the language, though, and especially Psalm 137, but even the other ones have this idea of, okay, God, uh, I'm hurting now, and I need you to pr- oh, fulfill your promises now to defeat the enemies. And and frankly, to pick on a prayer more of us know is oddly imprecatory is that old is the old table prayer most of us pray and i won't get into the controversies of these verse thy but the old uh, come lord jesus be our guest let and i i'm always polite i just say the here uh gifts to us be blessed but that prayer that many of us grew up praying we pick in my in my family that's the prayer we still pray mm-hmm. my family they say actually fill out the the there i i just am trying to be more polite lately is that that prayer there is an imprecatory prayer because what we're actually praying in that psalm isn't jesus it's nice to have you at our meal Uh, don't get me wrong i want jesus to be with us at our meal we're actually praying with a deep sense of longing that jesus come set things right and what that means is not only are we restored to the new creation but also even more so uh the enemies are defeated Uh, whenever we get any sort of eschatological vision, uh, images of hope. Uh, Jesus in his parables, there's always the where there's weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, to use Jesus' language in the parables. Uh, final verse of Isaiah is the one the lectionary never covers because it's the go out and look at the bodies of the slain. Yeah. Is, is that not only do we have image of restoration, we always have image of defeat of the enemy. And, and we're calling out God to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so the last time you and I spoke, we talked about Armageddon in Revelation. And so when we pray, come Lord Jesus, we're asking, Lord, come and do that now. Come come, bring about your final victory and the utter defeat of all your enemies. Come and do that now. And I think we do sometimes forget that 
about that prayer, that it isn't, we're asking God to make things right, and that does mean the utter defeat of all who would, would harm what is good and right and, and that belongs to God. And there's no, and I find that really reassuring and comforting. It's easy to get kind of hung up on the shock value here. Right. But the reality is our world is filled with evil and evil that most of us feel like we have no control over ever ending. Uh, we could hear the headlines, we can deal with it in our individual lives. Uh, back to my chaplaincy days, uh, saw enough of a culture of violence in St. Louis, is that you feel you can feel very defeatist at a while, after a while. The LIK, I can't control this world that's hostile, to hostile, this world of violence. But what we can do is trust and beg God to take care of it. Because ultimately, with all of these imprecatory psalms, uh, these are never calls for vigilantism. Uh, as much as I like Batman, sorry, uh, no vigilantes in the Bible. Right. But instead, uh, God is going to be the actor in all of this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the the prayers of imprecation put the put the matter into God's hands. It is not a, a vengeance being taken into the hands of the people of God, but leave it in the hands of God. Ask Him to do something about the evil that they are powerless to overcome. So let's go and, ahead and look and at the. If I can jump in, you used yeah. a good word there. That word vengeance. Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, and vengeance is a word that we struggle with because uh, I'm guessing most of our hearers are hearing that as, well, get somebody back, uh, vindictiveness. But actually divine vengeance, which is what's being called for here in 137. Uh, whenever we see that word vengeance in the Old Testament, uh, well, there's one minor occurrence where human is a subject, but it's actually c- closely connected to God's uh, justice and righteousness. Uh, mm. And I hate that word justice now because it gets weirdly defined uh, Actually, in my class, we don't use the word justice. We just use the word mishpat because that's the Hebrew word for justice and avoids the problem. Uh, I thankfully yes, maybe we should all learn Hebrew. <laughs> uh, you know, I I couldn't agree with you more. But uh, <laughs> but but that's actually closely connected to God setting things order, bringing us back to Genesis one, new creation stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I think vengeance is a, is a helpful word. You use the word vindication, and I I've often attached really. I think that's an important word too. That God. We see that that trusting in God was right, despite the fact that right now it doesn't always look like that. The trust in God is proved right. He shows that that it is true. He is right. He vindicates himself. He vindicates those who trust in him. I think keeping all those together is very helpful. Let's let's go ahead and, and take a look at this text. This is Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's the text we've got for today. That's Psalm 137. Dr. Teets, how, do you, how would you structure Psalm 137? What's the, the movement within this psalm? So we move from uh, lament to just an urgent prayer for vindication. Uh, this isn't, oh, like any of these psalm categories, uh, they don't, oh, 
nobody gave us a genre rule book of the Hebrew Bible. Right. So we start out with just an, uh, uh, an expression of pain, an expression of deep longing, the pathos here. I mean, I, I find the appeal of Psalm 137 is just how beautifully emotional it is. Hmm. Is that then we go from we're hurting, we're hurting, we're hurting to a prayer of make this hurt stop. And a prayer, that almost sounds too sanitary. Uh, let's go with uh, urgent plea begging. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to come up with, probably, there needs to be a stronger word there for that. This is yeah. not just a, okay, it's not like, by the way, could you get around to this? This is a, a deep-seated cry of pain and a cry of longing. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so with you mentioned the the first verse already by the waters of Babylon. Three three words in Hebrew. Well, that's five in English there in the ESV. By the waters of Babylon, and you you made the connection to Ezekiel one verse one. Is there something to the the place where this uh, this pain is happening that it's by the waters of Babylon and not just Babylon in general? Yeah, it's it's ugly here. Oh, so here we have this land that's noted for its agricultural fertility. That's Mesopotamia. It's a if you want, on paper, Mesopotamia is a far better deal than Israel. Mm. Uh, they, ha- they have waters. They have the hanging gardens, for crying out loud. You have this land of agricultural abundance. You're, you're not depending upon God to make it rain to survive. Is that it's, it's this nasty contrast that, on paper, they're actually in a better spot. Mm. They have their earthly needs being met. And we even see it more so in two. We got the, uh, what, to, what to do, uh, uh, we'll go with the ESV there, poplars. They have, they have trees, all of these life-giving elements. And the brutal, painful irony of this is that in spite of being in a place that is utterly life-giving, their, their life has been absolutely taken away from them. And, and that makes part of this pain even sharper here. Mm. Yeah, well, and now that I'm, I'm thinking about the just the Psalter, you know, the very first psalm has that image of being like a tree planted by water, and yet, as you said, this water's in Babylon, and so the the pain of not being in the place that God has said, this is where I'm going to put you, and, and by the water of that place, that it almost twists the knife. Yeah, and you bring up a great move by bringing up Psalm 1. So Psalm 1 and 2, in terms of, this goes back to the earlier conversation about the macro structure of the Psalter. Uh, Psalm, 1, Psalm 1 and 2 actually are the introduction to the Psalter. So we read everything in light of 1 and 2. So yeah, one gives us this wonderful image of what it means to be, uh, oh, and it's an ashray too. It's a blessed is. Yeah. So blessed is, yeah. So here you are, a tree transplanted by streams of water, and now here we are by the water, and we are anything but, and we are not transplanted, but uprooted. Mm, yeah, yeah. And and then if you, when you keep Psalm 2 in mind, although the, the king doesn't really show up uh, explicitly in this psalm, that's part of the problem here, is that the, the anointed king that's in Psalm 2 where is he in Psalm 137? Yeah, and this gets back to, God, we have your promises. Right now, none of them seem to be kept, mm. including the promise that there will be a David who rules in, I'm going to use the word now, mishpat, otherwise known as justice and righteousness. Yeah, yeah, and here they are instead, by the waters of Babylon. And so they're, the, the psalmist says that they're sitting down, they're weeping there when they remember Zion. That word remember, I noticed, shows up a couple times in this psalm. Talk about what's going on here with their remembrance of Zion. I always like softball questions like this, by the way. Uh, remembering, though, is, uh, okay, uh, I teach for a living, so I, I force my students to remember all kinds of things like Hebrew verbs and vocab and being able to parse stuff. 
that's not actually what this notion of remember means in the Bible. Uh, both remembrance and knowing also is along the same lines. Uh, these are not necessarily cognitive activities, although there's a cognitive part to it, but much more so they're uh, participatory activities. So for them to remember means that they want to participate. They want to be back there, much more so than simply, oh, yeah, we heard this place called Zion. We vaguely remember. I can give you some details and some cool facts about it. It's much more so of when we uh, remembered when we participated back in Zion. Mm. And so the fact that they can't go and participate, that's the real thats the real sorrow here. It's not just that, I mean, yeah, they, they can't go there. And so that that adds just, it's not just a sadness that, oh, I'm thinking about it and I'm crying, but the sadness that I can't do those things that I want to do that God has given for me to do, it's gone. Yeah. And you can just hear the, you can just hear the emotion here. They're, they're sitting down. They've, they've given up. There's, yeah. there's nothing more they can do. That's right. Okay. So, so they're sitting down by these waters of Babylon on paper. It seems like it's a better place, but it's not because it's not. Zion, and you you mentioned this earlier that Zion's the goal of the Psalter. Just remind us of the what what is Zion? Why is that such a, a key part of the Psalter? Yeah, oh, Zion, key part of the Psalter. It's key part of the Bible. Yeah, uh, I half the time uh, this is almost like when I mention oh key part of the Old Testament. I have to remember. Yeah, it's actually the key part of the Bible. One of those occupational hazards at times. <laughs> So when we talk about what Zion is, uh, there's, it's easy for us to get hung up thinking Zion is somehow earthly Jerusalem. And I had mentioned a little bit earlier about kind of the, the abuse during Jeremiah's day, which is, if you figure Jeremiah is predating this psalm by a little bit, is that Zion, uh, and this is Isaiah 2, massive part of Isaiah, and Isaiah and the Psalter work really well together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they well, interact heavily is that Zion is not simply the uh, Temple Mount. It's not simply an earthly Jerusalem. And in fact, to call it that actually completely misses the point. So the promise of Zion is closely connected to the Temple. It's wonderfully incarnational. So for them to remember Zion means they want to participate where God is with God's forgiveness, where also God's Torah is, God's revelation. And that word Torah, this is a Psalm 1 issue, actually, more than as, oh, Psalm 1 issue and all over the place issue, is that this is God's revelation. It's also where community is. Uh, And this is another piece that for most of us, uh, this is the category of something I can explain, but probably will never get, is that when you're in in the majority world, which is where the Psalter assumes, and most of us, depending who's listening to us, many of us, at least myself included, we are not part of the majority world. We are uh, individualists to our own detriment at times. But when your identity is the community, that's also a big part of Zion. Hmm. So we can talk about identity here. Yeah. And also this working about of peace and protection. Hmm. And this, I remember teaching this at my church at Emmanuel on Jefferson Avenue. There's a shout out to, my, to the church I'm a member at here in Fort Wayne. Uh, we'll see if anybody listens. But no, uh, be, be, that's beside the point. Uh, okay. Uh, is that... Uh, one person said when I was teaching this in Bible study, he said, well, oh, Zion's, we're Zion. And I said, okay, you're the best theologian in the room. What they're <laughs> looking for is uh, Zion is Jesus, Zion is the church. Because this is ultimately what Zion is. They've run into problems, and this is actually a nice response to the abuse of the end of the pre-exilic period. 
uh, it's uh, Jeremiah 7. It's the Haikal Yahweh, Haikal Yahweh, we, uh, Temple of Yahweh, Temple of Yahweh. What do they think? Okay, uh, earthly Jerusalem is going to be fine no matter what happens. Uh, time out, technical foul, Babylon happens. But now it's let's get back to what Zion was really supposed to be hmm. and what Zion yeah. really is. Right, and so as they remember that, as they desire to participate in those gifts of God, they mourn because that Jerusalem, the temple, those places where God has promised to be, those have been destroyed, so they're mourning. We're going to keep looking at this mourning, this lament, this cry for God to act on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 27th. We're studying Psalm 137 with Dr. Ryan Teets. He is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So, Dr. Teets, we talked about verse 1 prior to the break. The people of God are weeping by the rivers of Babylon because they're remembering Zion. And it's there by those rivers, there are willows or poplars that they're hanging up their lyres, they won't sing, even though the captors want them to, and they're tormenting them. Talk about what's what's going on, this scene there by the rivers of Babylon. Yeah, and we already talked about how by sitting down, they've already given up hope. And the Psalter is all about these the orientation. It's the singing praises. And this is looking towards the end of the Psalter, as we already talked about. The, okay, yeah, we can't wait to—we want these psalms of ascent. But now they're not able to sing anymore. And singing is— how God's people respond when God saves. So by hanging up their lyres here, hanging up their musical instruments, they've said, look, uh, God's not saving us here. And this gets into really the profound pain in this psalm. And that's something we just can't, we can't gloss over, because if you see and hear the trauma and pain of the Psalter, it actually makes the rest, it actually helps us understand really the entire psalm. Yeah. Yeah, and then and we go from okay, so they've given up. The okay, we can't, we cannot respond to God's saving actions. We've hung up our liars because God is well. We're we're anything but experiencing God's salvation right now. Yeah, yeah. And and then we have that just that nasty, the nasty you know, what kicking people while they're down language. Okay, right, so yeah. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Verse three is just it's just ugly. Yeah. Uh, here they are. I mean, okay, they've lost everything. They're they're miserable. So what happens? The people, they're the enemy. The enemy who has now taken everything from them says, okay, let's have some fun. 
your job is to amuse us. And the way you're going to amuse us is you're going to, quote unquote, remember Zion. You're going to have a great time uh, chirping about Zion. That way you can remember, and that way you can be even in more pain. Yeah. Mm. Pretend to be joyful. Pretend to be joyful. And instead, I mean, this is, you talk about kicking somebody while they're down here. And, and you can just imagine, and, and really, you cannot understand how much pain and pathos and trauma is in this psalm. Is that here we have the, yeah, oh, yeah, let, let me make fun of you and let me force you to pretend everything's okay in, a way, in order to, one, allow us to at least have some past the time, but even more so from their captors' perspective, in order for you to experience even more pain. And we just keep bringing up what's bothering you. Yeah, and is there is there also an element, you kind of, I think, hinted at this earlier, on paper, Babylon's better. Right? The waters of Babylon, this is a much more fertile place than Israel. So is there an element there of, of the, the torment that, yeah, go ahead and sing us one of those songs. You think that's so great, but you're really in a better place. What's the problem? Is that part of the, the torment? Yeah. Well, yeah, look, here, on paper, you have rivers here. You have, you, you're not. No, you're not going to have to worry about starvation like you always have to in Israel. Yeah, so let's, yeah, let's just tell, oh, yeah, you can, let's just make fun of that place that was pretty lousy to begin with. Yeah, yeah, and as, as you said, the fact that they, they're unable to sing really does point to the pain, and we've talked about singing in several places in the Psalter so far, and and I was thinking about this especially, there's, there's often the sense when the people of God sing that they do so even when the victory isn't apparent, you know, there, there's times where the people of God will sing before the victory actually is made apparent. And we, we might have even talked about that in the book of Revelation, that, and especially as the church today, we join in those songs of Revelation now, even when we can't always see the victory. And so the fact here that, that they don't see the victory for sure, and they can't even sing, I think that really does, it shows you just how deep a level of pain it actually is. Yeah, they're, they're not doing, uh, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, yeah. you want to magnify your holy name. No, they're, they, are, they are hurting so much. And that actually helps us pray this psalm. And this is a psalm to be prayed by people who are really hurting. That, that okay, and do they think God has forgotten them? Uh, these psalms, even these ugly, messy ones, are rooted in a faith that, they're rooted in faith that God's promises. The issue is, why on earth is God not doing them? Hmm. It's not a, a God, it's not a rejection of God. It's actually a, God, I actually trust you, but right now, I'm hurting so much, and I don't know, I don't know who you are. Hmm. So then, how does, how does verse 4 play into this? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What's, what's the, What's the question? It's, it's the question that's going to haunt the prophet Ezekiel in his entire book. So what does it mean for us to be able to, oh, when we've lost our identity, and that's a piece that I know keeps coming up in our discussion today, uh, we, we can't sing here because we don't belong here. And this gets back to our Zion theology, gets back to, oh, I always hate bringing up the book Leviticus, but that's just the book that's haunted me for my entire life after, and, well, a quip I made one time while teaching it, saying it's the book of the Bible I, uh, I let's skip over. The head of the LWML disagreed with me. She was right, and I've been doing penance from it. That's right. Is that, uh, that this issue of alien soil, it's, they're, they're stuck being profane. And in the, they're in the land of uncleanness, of, prof, of being profane, which means that, oh, how can we do this 
if we're isolated from you, we don't even know if you're forgiving us anymore. And that's that isolation from temple being so, so ugly in a way that I dare say none of us here can fully embrace and fully uh, get how painful uh, these prayers really are. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, you know, this this verse was one that I was was pondering, singing the Lord's song in a foreign land, because there are places in the New Testament where the I think it's Peter and James. I think both talk this way that Christians are exiles that we're we're living in a dispersion right now, and so. Well, how how can we sing the Lord's song as exiles, as Christians? And that, as you were talking there, one thought that occurred to me is that with the idea of, you know, this is foreign land, well, think about what Jesus came proclaiming in the gospel, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that he has come to reign, to to take back the, the enemy territory that is rightfully his. And when we realize that Jesus is reigning as king, even when it doesn't always look like it, that does allow us to sing the songs of Zion as Christians today, even when it doesn't look like the victory is apparent. Now, I don't want to take away from the, the pain and the, the pathos that you're talking about here, because I think that is important, but that was something that, you know, I was thinking about this, how do we, how do we move from this kind of pain into that, you know, that singing that we have, even in the midst of, of the pain? That was one way I was trying to grapple with that. Yeah, and what's nice about any of these psalms is they actually never answer your question. Yeah, how, how's that for a horrible answer to your to a horrible response? That's okay. And I mean, I'm uh, oh, this is a, life as a pastor is great. I absolutely love it. And I had a congregation member who said, "Look, I uh, I hate the I hate the Psalms of Lament because they go Pollyanna." Was that was the response? Uh, I uh, as a young pastor didn't know what to say. As a slightly older pastor, still don't quite know what to say. But the issue was, and this is a person who had gone through all kinds of uh, really harsh times is that the issue is when you're in the midst of these depths, you don't know how you're going to get there, but yeah. you do. And the Psalter, like in, even in this case, this Psalm never, never, never actually gives us this nice little move to praise. It's ending pretty, well, well not pretty. It's, okay, yeah. please, please hurry up. Right. But the other Psalms that really get into this move from lament to praise, this Psalm is part of a journey is that we don't know how we get there. And I mean, you read the commentators, they get funny. They're like, ooh, maybe he uh, fell asleep, felt better, and then wrote the end of the psalm. Uh, I would love to say that's a straw man, but it's not. Uh, but we don't know how we get there, but we know we'll get there. And I like your language. The kingdom of God is at hand. And, and why I love talking about exile, uh, even though we like to just zip from the 8th century to, to Matthew, is that it really does... and. It's the language of where we are now. We are we are not at home. Uh, we know God's promises, but when life stinks, at times God's promises can seem very distant to us. Yeah. So we and we are called to embrace God's promises. Yeah, yeah. Well, you talk about the how we get there. I, I think you're right. You know, I don't I don't know how we get there, but I do think as as I've reflected on this, and and you know listened to to the people of God go through these struggles and walk through those struggles with them. I think that if we don't ever go through the actual—and this sounds so new agey, but I don't know a better way to say it—if we don't actually go through the process of lamenting, if we don't actually pray psalms like this, and we try to jump all the way from the problem to the solution without actually doing the lamenting and the complaining and the asking God to do it now, if we don't do that, then I don't think we actually get there. And I— 
like, you know, it sounds like I think we have to go through that process. I don't know exactly how it works, but the Lord uses these prayers, as you called this, the, the divinely way, authorized way to speak to God. When we use these, He gets us there. Exactly. And our challenge as caregivers is that to be able to sit with pain, or even for us as we're suffering, uh, pain's not fun. And it, for those of us who do caregiving, I've been called to do a life of caregiving. Uh, being with hurting people is is gut-wrenching. These are the days where you go home and you just don't want to ill. Go home exhausted. Is that our goal is to actually let the pain and give allow that pain to have a voice, as opposed to saying some nice little trite saying of God has a plan, which don't get me wrong, God does. But until you actually give voice to the pain and trust the journey, and yeah, I, I don't know, New Age is exactly what I'd go with, but uh, I, I, but, uh, but it sounds it, wishy-washy to me, but I don't really know how else to but, say it. But, but my standard line, because I've dealt with, especially when I was in St. Louis and then even pastoral ministry, I've dealt, like any pastor, I've, I've dealt with a lot of deaths, a lot of tragedies, and we, we all can exchange war stories that we'd like to feel really triumphant about, but that ripped us apart in reality, is the line that I always use when I'm at a death is uh, your journey of, gr- your oh, everybody's journey through grief is different. And I'm going to be here wherever your journey leads, because that's all we can do. Yeah. And just yeah. let the and and that's all what we can, as caregivers can ever do. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that again, just to, that's what the Psalter does so well is is wherever we find ourselves in grief, there's a Psalm that that speaks to that and allows us then to speak to God in that grief, so that it's not just your your pastor who goes with you on that journey, but it's God who goes with you on that journey. Yeah, and this is where Jesus, and this is where having Jesus being the one who prays the Psalms. Yeah, this is Jesus accompanying you through your journey. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, it, as the psalm moves on, then it on the one hand, the exiles there by the waters of Babylon are just they're sitting down and weeping as they're trying to remember Zion, and they they're tormented by the captors as they taunt them. But on the other hand, they don't want to forget. And I think that's what's going on in verses 5 and 6. They want to remember Jerusalem and say, if, if we don't, then, then that would be awful. What's that? How's that play into this psalm? This is not—okay, this is going to sound obvious, but, but hopefully—this is not a faithless psalm. Uh, this gets back to this whole idea of when we talk to God this way, we are actually—this is how we talk because we believe. And Psalm 5 and 6 it's this decry, really a defiant cry of faith here, and I mean this is a pretty serious oath formula. I mean, yeah, if, yeah, if I forget you, let my right hand wither. And uh, as somebody who is admittedly left-handed, I always get annoyed that the right hand gets all the press here. But uh, Ehud, Ehud is my favorite character in the Bible That's for right. a good reason. Uh, but this idea of and right hand, it's your strength, it's your power, contrary to those of us who are properly left-handed. But this notion of Okay, don't let me. Okay, it's so easy for me to give up here, but I'm going to refuse. So I'm going to hang on to the promises that God, you're still here, you still forgive, you still bring about your radical peace in spite of everything. And yeah, I mean those those oath, oath formulas in five and six. So we go from this painful, traumatic uh, pathos of okay, I'm giving up, I'm giving up, and then oh, but I but I refuse to. Uh, five and six really are the cry of faith here. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a, I think a sense of defiance, and not only so that in five you've got let my right hand forget its skill uh, or wither, as you said. Verse six, then it's it's the matter of the voice. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. So they they couldn't sing, and yet here, wait, if if I forget, then that's really when my tongue would stick to the roof of my mouth. They, you go from the expression of pain in uh, one through four to now. Okay, I the pain. I still trust, and yeah, okay, I can't sing now, but that doesn't mean I can't still talk of God's wondrous works. I can't still call God out on God's promises. But yeah, I, I love five and six. Uh, you, we t- think of uh, cries of faith or statements of faith being being rather uh, rather tame. Uh, five and six are not tame at all. I mean, this is a you know, it's it's a uh, it's an oath formula. Don't if this happens, let all these horrible things happen to me. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, this this cry of defiance, as you said, the cry of faith, even in the midst of the torment, it is in this psalm, and it's it's there as they're they're lamenting that faith is there side by side. If I don't remember Jerusalem, if I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy, these are the oaths that come. Then in in verse seven, that cry of faith becomes, "Lord, act now." So. Take us in. We've got about nine minutes here, Dr. Teets, and these these verses, verses 7 through 9, especially verse 9, are the ones that really have the shock value when it comes to Psalm 137. Help us into these. So verse 7, here's where we get to talk about Obadiah. Okay, yeah, I, we should have just talked longer so we could avoid these awkward verses. Uh, but so, 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 so much, for, our, so much for, my, for my devious plan on this. Okay, so in the background is God's that the psalmist and us, as we pray this, our foundation is God defeats the enemy. So verse 7, and yes, this is the gratuitous Obadiah reference, which just makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Uh, if you would have told me I would spend a good chunk of my uh, scholarly career annihilating Edomites, because I'm currently working on Isaiah 34. So yeah, I, uh, every, we, all, we all have to have an expertise, I guess. Uh, is that this uh, book of Obadiah is what's in the background here. This isn't an Isaiah 34 or Isaiah 63 issue. Is that uh, Edom is singled out here because Edom is Esau's descendants. The problem with Esau, and this gets into the brother language that just fills Obadiah. It's uh, against your brother, against your brother. It's a, it's a resounding theme in Obadiah. Is that as, Ju- as Judah, as Israel's brother... Uh, Esau was supposed to, Esau and, and its descendants, and his descendants, were expected to act to care for them. Uh, in a society based upon the community, uh, this is majority world stuff here, is that when your brother is in help, you are morally obligated to help them. And Edom is the exact opposite. Instead of being the brother who honors family obligations, they absolutely... And Obadiah goes from, uh, they ignore them, ignore them to, uh, they cut off the survivors. Yeah. So that's what's in view there in, in the prayer of verse 7. Yeah, very much so. Obadiah, Obadiah is really the text that helps us understand this, which is kind of fun to be able to at least have, be able to bring up Obadiah in a more predictable way. Well, and so the prayer here is to that the now the Lord would remember. So talk about, I mean, you've yeah. mentioned that before. So there's another maybe softball question for you. What does it mean when the Lord remembers? Yeah, uh, we, we've gone from uh, let's participate in God, uh, where God is to, okay, God, you need to participate and not participate. You need to be, interact with, is probably a little bit better here. Uh, interact with, uh, have a connection to this evil to destroy it. 
So yeah, well, don't let me forget you, but God, make sure you not only don't forget us, but also remember to remember what is done to us. Uh, remember, oh, this is Genesis 12 stuff. Remember to curse those who curse us because you said you would. Yeah. And yeah, don't, don't forget your job to be our sole protector. Hmm. Now in, in verse 8 then, the prayer turns toward the daughter of Babylon. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. This is a rather, this is a beatitude, but it's not what we're used to hearing when it comes to beatitudes. Yeah, not exactly Psalm 1 here. No. Is that, so now, so we already have Edom, the uh, brother who failed in his duty, so failed to, uh, to honor moral obligations. In the case of Babylon, now we have something a little bit different than Edom. So now we have one of the empires, so Babylon and Assyria, the two empires that tend to that get a lot of the press in the Old Testament, is that Babylon is both God's agent, and we know that from, from Jeremiah. But like any agent with any of these empires, it's an agent that overstands its boundaries and also under God's judgment. So already, uh, Isaiah 13, we've already had all of this stuff that God has said uh, Babylon's doomed here. So what they're doing here is saying, okay, you said Babylon was doomed? Uh, hurry up and do it right now. Yeah. So that when it says, blessed shall he be who repays you, I mean, is that blessed be the Lord when you do this, or blessed be the, the nation that the Lord uses, or both? I should have filibustered. This is Yeah, because at this point, the psalmist is so, so hurt. And when we experience evil, evil hurts, and, and just the pain is that they're to the point of just absolute desperation, a blessing to anyone who does this, because could you please hurry up and do it? Hmm. And, and that's where we really have, yeah, that ashray there, the blessed is, uh, is, is pretty generic. Uh, yes, God is ultimately the one who's in charge of God's vengeance. Uh, but at this point, they are so desperate, anybody help us. Uh, whatever instrument you're going to use, uh, we're going to be so thankful for, hmm. which is really hard. and. I, I really, I, the danger on this, at least for me and perhaps for you as well, is uh, I, I deal with I deal with ugly texts. These texts don't shock me, and I forget how painful this is. Yeah. And I, I, we really need to be sensitive to what's being asked for here. Yeah, well, and and being sensitive to what's being asked for that brings us then to verse nine: "Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, your babies." and dashes them against the rock. I mean, there, you talk about pain and being expressed in a raw way. Verse 9 is that. And it's very easy for us to impose our 21st century way of viewing warfare and struggle upon this text. And we have to be really careful here. Uh, This is where a good example of how the text is written for us, but not necessarily to us. It's written to a a world that's a lot different than ours. Hmm. And that... To, and that's really key for unpacking what this image is of uh, the uh, Babel, uh, bopping Babylonian babies' heads against the rocks. Uh, what's being done here, and again, I don't want to undersell how how raw this is and how really bothersome. Uh, this isn't exactly a text for those of us who are who embrace the pro-life movement. This isn't exactly a good text to use. Is that what they're by what they're appealing to would have been the conventions of warfare in their day. Uh, if you if you see any of the propaganda of these empires, they show this at worse. Uh, Syrian propaganda is phenomenal, oh, phenomenal, phenomenal, and absolutely gruesome. I 
am a history major, I have my moments of being insensitive, is that this is actually how you dealt with an enemy. And what they're actually praying for here is not so much the death of the infants. That's there, though. And I, again, don't want to undersell it. But they're actually praying for the impossibility of evil to ever rise again. So the whole point of this, and this would have been what was done in kind of following, this would have been, this would have been the stock imagery of warfare at the time of the Psalter. And read Lamentations. The people have already saw this done to them. They're actually kind of saying, okay, God, uh, give to them what they gave to us. Yeah. Is what they're really praying for here is an end to the evil and it will never rise again. A mm-hmm. permanent end. Uh, I, it, I, 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 I can pray this psalm. I'm going to wince every time I get to that point. Because I, I, I can go, uh, I have a gallows sense of humor. I can get, get flippant, but we have to take it seriously. But also, really this longing that uh, we want evil to stop. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, I mean, for us as Christians, that's where we need to, to land on this, is that it is a prayer for evil to stop. The imagery, I think, is it's going to shock us every time, and we can't really stop that. But I, I do think what, what you're saying about this, you know, that the next generation would not come around, that the evil would be brought to an end, that is where we can see this as a, a prayer that, that we would speak as Christians, maybe not in that very language, although, again, this is the, the very Word of God to us, and we, we, can't, we don't want to deny that. But the thought that, that we want God to bring an evil to an end so that it will never rise again and never has a chance to rise again, yeah. that's absolutely something we pray for. And when and it I, comes, and when it yeah, comes to Babylon or Edom or take your pick on any of these foreign nations— uh, we, we learn in the New Testament, uh, Edom doesn't get mentioned again. Babylon shows up in Revelation a bunch. Yep. But Babylon is not the Babylonian Empire at this point. All of these nations are unpa- unmasked as actually being agents of, of Satan and his powers. So that's what's really being prayed for here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as, as we would use this prayer as Christians, that, that, that is a fantastic point. Think about the way Babylon is referred to in the book of Revelation and the evil that, that Babylon is there. Certainly we pray against that, that the Lord would come and deliver his victory to us now. The Reverend Dr. Ryan Teets is Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology and Dean of Students at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's been helping us today to study Psalm 137. Dr. Teets, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks again for a messy text and a wonderful conversation. Fantastic conversation indeed. The emotion is real. The pain was raw for the people of God as they lamented their homeland being destroyed. Where was God? What was he doing? And the questions that they had, they took to the Lord. They lamented. They asked him to act in ways that do shock us, yes. But still, we ask God to act. Come, Lord Jesus, deliver your victory to us now. The victory that you have won by your death and resurrection already, make that our reality forever by your last day return. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 137, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk again tomorrow.